Along with David, I want to welcome you here. It's uh, great to have you here on this Labor Day long weekend. Um, this is the time where we gather uh, to hear from God through his word, also uh, just to find out what's going on in the life of the church. I really do encourage you to pursue uh, all of the things that David mentioned, especially community groups. It's just one of the best ways uh, to, to love God, love people, as, as it said there, and to be known uh, in that way and, and to grow in your faith. And so uh, they're all out there on the table and, and online. I really do uh, encourage you to make that part of your rhythm for the fall and for the rest of the year. Um, we have been in the book of Psalms all summer long, and this is our, our final Sunday there. And so I'm going to begin with a word of prayer, and then we are going to give our time to Psalm 111, uh, which is a fantastic psalm of praise this morning. So join with me, please, as we begin. Lord God, thank you for this time and this place. Uh, thank you, Lord, that as we gather here, we come with the clear understanding that uh, you love your people and God, that you have given your word so that we would be blessed and shaped and, and pushed and convicted. Uh, God, I pray that all of that would happen this morning. I pray, Lord, that each one of us would have an open heart and open mind uh, to what you have to say. And I pray, Lord, that uh, the words that you give me would be ones that honor you and are, and are most helpful to us here. And I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Psalm 111 is a psalm of praise. That's why I think it's a great way to end our time in the book of Psalms because it, it very much directs us to praise God for all that he has done and for who he is. And so as a way to enter into this, uh, this psalm this morning, I thought it would be fitting. It's going to be a little bit uh, unusual, but, but fitting for us to listen to a song. I say fitting because the psalms are actually songs that God's people have sung over all the generations about God. It's a little unusual, though, because it's, it's not a, a Christian song. Uh, this is a song of heartfelt praise from a father to his newborn daughter. And so you may recognize this song. I'm going to warn you, we're, we're only going to be able to listen to the first two verses. Once it starts, you're going to want to listen to more, but we have to cap it off. So uh, this is a song uh, by Stevie Wonder called Isn't She Lovely, written in 1976 at the birth of his daughter. And so we're going to hit it, and I want you to listen for the heart behind it. And also the baseline. I want you to listen to that. Okay. My gift to you is that song will be in your head for many weeks to come. Now, great song. Um, there's some questionable theology in the song, but that's okay. We don't typically listen to Stevie Wonder for his theological accuracy. Uh, we listen because it's a great song with, with great lyrics, a great melody, 
And in this case, uh, it's very, very clear to us why he has written the song. You don't need to go to Stevie Wonder and ask him how he feels about the birth of his daughter. It's very, very apparent. He is he's captivated by her. He, he, he loves her. The lyrics express the heart of a, of a father who just can't believe this newborn child. And the whole point of the song is, to, is a celebration of that event, that now she is here and he gets to tell everyone how he feels about her. He's captivated. He's in love with her, even though she's just a couple of days old. This tone, this one of of heartfelt praise and excitement and celebration, this is the same tone that we find in our song. Now, though it would have been sung, probably the melody would not have been as catchy, and yet, the words that are expressed are just as heartfelt, and the subject matter is even more grand than the birth of a new baby. So what I want for us as we turn our attention to Psalm 111 is to look for the connection that we see here between knowing God Delighting in God and then praising God for who he is and for what he's done. So uh, listen or read along if you have your Bible with you to Psalm 111, which begins this way. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. In the company of the upright in the congregation, great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty is his work and his righteousness endures forever. He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. He has shown his people the power of his works in giving them the inheritance of the nations. The works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. He sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. Well, that's God's word to us this morning. And clearly, the psalmist is is captivated by God. What we're going to see here is, I think, a combination of a number of aspects of faith. And so I'm going to express what I think the big idea is here just in one sentence, which is this. Those who delight in God will study his works and praise his name. Those who delight in God, who love God, are captivated by God, will study his works and praise his name. And those three parts of that sentence is what's going to guide our time together. So to begin with, delighting in God. That word is not one that we use very often. I mean, we all know what it means, but we don't tend to say that we delighted in a concert or a movie. We we say we loved it, it was awesome, it was great. And yet we know what the word means. It, it, It means that we are moved by something. Something has pleased us. We've enjoyed something greatly. And in this case, the word is is used to describe the works of God, which I think is fitting because the psalmist is clearly captivated and delighted in the great sense of that word by what God has done. Look at verses uh, 1 to 3. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. In the company of the upright and the congregation, greater the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty is his work. And his righteousness endures forever. Notice the language of praise, heartfelt praise. But note also that it doesn't say there in in verse 2, great are the works of the Lord studied by all who agree with their historical verifiability. (laughs) Or or who agree with their truthfulness even. Right? It, it, It doesn't say that. It says that we are, he delights in the works of God. 
Now, of course, the works of God are true. We can, in fact, go back into the pages of history and corroborate what we see in the Bible by what actually happened. But, but these works of God are more than just true. They are, they are soul-stirring. They are heart-filling. They're mind-blowing when we really consider all that God has done in the pages of history. And so what we have here is, a, is an emphasis both on the intellectual and also the emotional aspects of faith. That believing as God is, in God is not something you just do with your mind. It, we're intended to do it with our whole heart, with our whole being. Now this is something that I, I think many of us resist or at least feel not super comfortable with. The idea that faith is something that is both intellectual and emotional is not something that we, we necessarily endorse wholeheartedly. I know this is definitely true for me. Uh, in the early stages of my faith, uh, I came to a point where I believed that God existed. As I was reading the Bible, I came to a point where I, I believed that the claims of Christianity were true, and I found myself uh, getting more and more interested in the doctrines of the faith. Uh, I was really striving for theological accuracy. I wanted to know exactly what the Bible said and how to understand it best, and those are all good things. But looking back, what I realized is that there was there was something missing there. I didn't really have a lot of heart in my faith. And it meant that I, I didn't really have a lot of love for the people around me or even for God. I was blind to passages like this one, uh, which really put a lot of emphasis on the emotional side of faith, the response that should well up in us when we consider all the things that are true about God. Uh, there's a book that helped me in this time, a book recommended to me by my pastor, uh, and the book is called Desiring God by John Piper. And it's a great, great book, and in it, one of the main arguments is this, that a true believer is one who not only believes in God, but finds his or her greatest joy in God. Faith is not something that we simply believe to be true, but something that stirs us emotionally. And through scripture, we see this. This is what Piper does. He goes, kind of goes through to passages like, like our psalm for today. Or here's another one that he points out, Psalm 37.4, which says simply, delight yourself in the Lord. And what he points out is that these verses, which talk about finding joy in God, delighting in God, they're not uh, suggestions. They're not add-ons to our faith. They are, in fact, part of the essence of our faith. G God commands us to, to delight in him, to find our joy in him. And what I realized is that God didn't just want me to know the truth, he wanted me to delight in it, to find pleasure in it. It was eye-opening, but it was, also, it was also kind of hard because that wasn't, that's not exactly how I'm wired. For some people, um, you know, getting emotional, being, being vulnerable, that just comes at second nature. But for many of us, um, it's much more comfortable to believe with our minds in a sense and have our hearts kind of, kind of hold back. And I think this is because a lot of us have kind of an internal safety mechanism when it comes to relationships. You know, even with people that, that we're close with, we're, we're close, but we're not, we're not too close. We, we feel more comfortable having some protective walls up around our heart so that we might have deep friendships or even a spouse, but there are still areas that we kind of keep to ourselves. And we do that because then if they disappoint us, it doesn't hurt as much. Right? We, we feel safer because we haven't opened ourselves up completely. And it's true, it, it does work. To be emotionally guarded does, does protect us in a sense. 
But the other thing it does is it, it robs us of the enjoyment of that relationship. This is true in friendships, it's true in marriage, and it's also true in faith. To the extent that we are holding ourselves back, we, we are not fully enjoying all that that relationship would have to offer. And in fact, God wants for us to, to fully enjoy all that a relationship with him has to offer. There's, there's actually a lot of joy in the Bible. It's probably not surprising. But from beginning to end, there's just 200 references just to the word joy. Much less blessed or happy. We see it through the Psalms especially. We see it in the Old Testament worship of God's people that there's this expression, this public display of joy and satisfaction in God, worshiping God with loud voice and song. We see it at the coming of Jesus in the New Testament. The angels come and they find these shepherds who are just like, what is going on? And, and they proclaim a message of joy. Here's, here's Luke 2. It says that there is good news of great joy for all people. The angels are saying, this, this is what it means that Jesus has come. Yes, that you will be helped, there's salvation, but that leads to your joy. That there's greater happiness now that he's here because you will have access to the Father. And we see it in the ministry of the early church. Because as they go from town to town, uh, the people are, are saved. They come to know Jesus, some of them. And look at the response. This is um, in Acts 8.8 8, where Philip is doing ministry in Samaria. And when he leaves one of the towns after sharing Jesus with them, it just says, so there was much joy in that city. Joy because of, of knowing Jesus. Joy because of knowing what God has done for them. There's an emotional response that comes with that truth, with that reality. But the only way we're really going to know that joy is if we have an open heart. It's if we open ourselves up fully to God. If we don't hold things back, expecting him to, to disappoint us and being worried, but instead saying, Lord, I trust you fully. I want to experience every bit of joy, the satisfaction of knowing you, and so I'm not going to guard myself. So maybe that's a good question for us this morning. Would you consider yourself to be an emotionally guarded person? And maybe before you answer, it, it might be a good idea to, to ask someone else, because uh, if, if you're like me, you thought, I'm normal, of course, uh, I'm normal. I just don't tell anyone anything about my life. That's normal. That's what people do. It might be helpful to, to ask the people around you, do, you know, is it easy to get to know me? Do, do you have a sense that I'm, I'm sort of keeping myself from you? If you have faith in God, do you enjoy him? Does it bring you pleasure to think about the things that God has done in your life and, and to look in the pages of the Bible and say, man, look at... Look at what God does to the people of the world, how he treats them, how he loves them. Do you really have a satisfaction, an emotional satisfaction that is part of your faith or do you feel much more comfortable trusting in God from a distance? Not, not trusting him fully in case, in case he disappoints you. Now you might be wondering, what exactly does it look like to delight in God? Like what would, what would that life of faith look like? Well, that's what our psalmist helps us with. Because it's, it's not an emotional frenzy all the time, but it's also not just a, a cold and rational theology. It's really a beautiful intermingling of those two things. And that's what we find kind of in the, the rest of our, our verses. Uh, our big idea was those who delight in God 
will study his works and praise his name. And so those two things are the, are the combination of both studying intellectually the, the works of God, but also having heartfelt praise for who he is. And so we're going to look at each in turn uh, to begin with. The study of his works. Uh, we see this in verse 2, where it says, Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Now, study isn't normally something that is enjoyable, usually. Many of you are about to go back to school, and you're not looking forward to the studying. You're dreading the amount of study. Study equals n- not fun. So, so the idea here that, that people are studying things that they delight seems kind of weird, except that if, if we think about it, we realize that we know this is true. There are a great many things that you study willingly, joyfully, things that probably don't matter that much, but you really love, right? Things like sports and music and, and all sorts of things. I noticed in our household that uh, my, my boys, they, they enjoy playing video games, but more than that, maybe not more, in addition to that, they, they will watch other people playing video games on YouTube to find out more about that video game. <laughs> they're not playing the game. They're just watching someone who's really good at it, and they're doing it because they want to study the game. They want to know where all the treasure chests are, all the llamas are. They want to find out, they want to find out more about the game, and it's natural to them. They, they actually enjoy that part of it. They're studying something that they love, and we all do that. It, it's natural, even though it's... Strange with video games, but it's natural for, for us to give ourselves to the things that, that stir up our hearts. And so if we love God, if we enjoy him, then it will be natural for us to study his works. And what the psalmist does is give us sort of two categories of works. The first are God's uh, works in creation. And the second are God's works in the uh, pages of human history, his redemptive works. And so we're going to look at those two in turn. Uh, Now, something I came across, which I found fascinating, is that Psalm 111 is often described as the research scientist's psalm. And that's because of verse 2, where it talks about, you know, those who delight in his works will study them. In fact, there's a physicist named James Clark Maxwell. Uh, He worked at uh, the Cavendish Laboratory in Cambridge. And they were building a big new door for this lab- laboratory. And so he had inscribed in Latin uh, verse 2. You can see it there in that first picture. That, if we could read Latin, uh, would be Psalm 111 verse 2. Talking about those who delight in God and have a scientific mind. You're going to study creation. You're going to study all that you can find out about nature because of your delight. Because of your joy. That's, that's part of the research is, is enjoyable. I also found it interesting that in 1973, they actually had the same verse uh, written in English. Uh, even though it's not a you know, religious institution anymore, they, they put it there because it, it was sort of an uh, honoring of, of James Clark Maxwell, but also, I think, fitting that those who are delving deeply into the created world, they have a delight in the things that God has made. We see this connection between the works of God and and it being creation throughout the Psalms. Uh, Psalm 19.1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. And Psalm 104.24, O Lord, how manifold are your works! In wisdom have you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. See, we are meant to go outside and look around us and, and, and gain greater insight into what God is like. We're to see the, the biodiversity, the complexity, the creativity, and say, man, we serve an amazing God. We have much to praise him for. In fact, we're meant to simply look at creation and conclude that there is someone who made that. We see this in the book of Romans. It's one of the sort of foundational arguments that the Bible makes for all of us having a sense of God. Look here in verses 19 to 20. It says, For what can be known about God is plain to them, that's the people of the world, 
because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. What the Bible's saying is that going out into the world, looking around and saying, this, this probably just happened, would be like walking through an art museum and looking at the paintings on the wall and saying, this, this, these probably just happened. There's a logical disconnect between seeing something of beauty and complexity and design and assuming that it, it just happened by chance. And if we know that there is a creation, we can see it, and we conclude that there's a creator, it gives us all the more reason to, to study the works of God, to, to delve deeply into what we see around us. I remember, um, I remember though, that I had a conversation once with a friend of mine. Uh, he had a, a new job. He was an animator. And he was telling me um, about one of the things he liked about this job is that he could listen to nature documentaries while he worked because animators are looking at the screen the whole time and their ears are free, I guess. So, they can, so he was listening to nature documentaries and he was telling me about one of these uh, animals that, that he was listening to, this trapdoor spider. And it was this amazing spider that dug a burrow and had like this door thing and he could jump out and catch his prey. And he was just marveling. He's not a believer, but he's like, man, this, this spider's amazing. He couldn't believe the creativity, the ingenuity. And in a moment of rare um, insight, I said to him, boy, that, that is amazing. You know, tell me, does that make you believe in evolution more or less? Because how did that happen? And he kind of smiled and he looked at me and said, yeah, I, I'm not sure, he said, but I, I sort of take your point. And see, what I... What I noticed there was someone who was, who was appreciating this incredible work, but, but he had no one to appreciate for it. He was appreciating the work of God, but missed the joy of being able to praise God for what he had made. See, we're supposed to go out into the world, see the works of God, and give him his due praise because it's right and because it's enjoyable. Just like praising an artist. For, for what he's made, there's something about that that is right and fitting, and it, com- it sort of completes the joy. Now, for many of us who are not scientists, this means just simply we're going we're gonna to watch a lot of documentaries. We're going to see a lot of crazy animals from all over the world. We're going to say, that's amazing. God, you're amazing. For others among us that have a scientific bent, we are going to delve deeply into the world of quantum mechanics into deep mathematics, into the biodiversity around us, and we are really going to be able to understand the complexity of who God is because we can see that the piece is coming together. That, that's fantastic. That's what we're called to in this psalm, to look around us and to praise God for what he's done, to have joy and delight, not just at the world we live in, but at the one who made it. But those aren't the only works we're to, to praise God for, not just the created works, but also his works in history. If you look at Psalm Uh, Verse 4, 111 verse 4, it says this, He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. So how is it that we know that that God is gracious and merciful? Well, because we are to remember his works, the things that he's done throughout history. And the psalmist goes on to to reference a number of specific events. So uh, verse 5, it says this, He provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. And that's a reference to God feeding his people in their wandering in the wilderness miraculously from, from heaven, uh, manna, food raining down and, and caring for them. It's also a reference to God remembering his covenant with Abraham, that he said that he would provide a place for them and leading them into the, into the promised land. Uh, verse 6 says this, He has shown his people the power of his works in giving them the inheritance of the nations. 
That's a reference to the Exodus. The power of his works is him parting the Red Sea, bringing his people out of slavery, and then conquering the nations that were there occupying the land that had been promised to them. In all of that, we see the character of God. We see his faithfulness, we see his power, and we see his love for his people. In verse 7 and 8, it says, The works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. And here it's a reference to the law of God. That's what the the precepts of God are. That God loved the people of the world and so gave us the Ten Commandments. Gave us a clear uh, dividing line between that which is right and that which is wrong. This is a blessing to the people of the world so that we might know what a life of, of uprightness looks like but also so that we would understand our sin. So we would see the ways in which we need a savior as we do not fulfill all of these commands perfectly. Now these are all past events in history. But, but the beauty of it is that they don't only describe what God has done. They also describe what God is doing. Because his nature has not changed. The way in which he relates to his people has not changed either. See, God, God still provides for his people materially and physically as he had has done in the time of the wilderness wanderings. God's promises to care for his people remain true to this day. And God still leads his people into times and places of peace and blessing. So as we study his works in history, we know God more. It informs our faith, but also it helps us to trust him in the present. That because God has not changed, because he has shown his power in that way, he is still caring for us in the very same ways. And the pinnacle of this constant help and blessing from God is found in verse 9. Verse 9 says, He sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. Now this reference to redemption is again a reference to the Exodus story. Where God redeemed his people from slavery. That that word in the Hebrew is kind of a business term. It means to, to purchase something out of the marketplace. To, to, to bring freedom, if it's a slave, that they can no longer be bought and sold. That's exactly what God did for the Israelites. He brought them out of slavery to Pharaoh. Now they were free. They were liberated. It's, a, it's the thing that all of God's people look back to time and again through the Passover to remember how gracious is our God. How powerful is our God. But the, the amazing thing is this side of the New Testament, we know that it's not just a past event in history that that was really a foreshadow of a greater redemption, one that would come through Jesus himself. And we find this connection in the New Testament, the same language of, of redeeming, of redemption. Here is Paul talking about it to Titus. He says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. This is the gospel. This is the the kernel, the, the beginning of our genuine joy and peace with God. And we see here the abundant grace of God because one of the main differences between those two examples of redemption is that when it comes to Egypt, God's people were unwillingly enslaved. They moved down there because there's no food in the time of Joseph. They stayed there. That Pharaoh said, great, you you can have this land. You can stay there. But in time, another Pharaoh came and, and was nervous about all these Israelites. And so he enslaved them. 
because the Egyptians were stronger. But for us, we willingly enslave ourselves to sin and death. In, in the choices we make, in our willing disobedience to God, we put ourselves under subjection to the tyranny of sin and death. We are in rebellion against God. That, that's why we're in the trouble that we're in, and yet that did not hinder the love of God. See, Jesus knew the extent of our rebellion, yet he still came. He came to offer the purchase price for our redemption, knowing that we have our backs turned to him, knowing that it's our fault that we're there. And yet he came to die and to suffer on our behalf. See, there we see the grace of God. We see it revealed in its full glory and splendor. As we remember these things, we are able to, to praise God all the more. But let me ask you a question about all of this. Does any of this interest you? Like as we come here and we look into the, the word of God and we think back about all that God has done, what, does there anything that stirs in your heart? Is there anything that, that leads you to a point of appreciation for? Uh, just a, a, a spike of, of emotional response. Man, God, I can't, I can't believe what you've done in history and in my own life. See, what the psalmist says is those who genuinely delight in God and his works will want to study these things. We will, we will set aside time because we want to. Just like all the other things in our life that we naturally give ourselves to, like, like cars and sports and music, and knitting, <laughs> the, the knitters know that there, there are websites like Ravel. You can go and you can find all the new wool blends. It's exciting. <laughs> if you love knitting, right? You, you, a knitter does not have to set aside time to go and look those things up. We just do it naturally. Why? Because it's, it's enjoyable. It's, it's part of our heart. And so if, if you've heard these things all your life and, and it's become a, a bit dry, like you've heard what Jesus has done. You've heard about the Exodus and, and there's no emotional response. It, it may be good to ask yourself the question about why, that, why is that? What is it that's holding me back? Why is it that I can hear about these supernatural and amazing things and yet have no response to them? Now it may be because there is, there's unconfessed sin in your life. That very often is a reason why we are our intimacy is hindered with, with God. Our spiritual growth is hindered because there's, there's some part of our life that we have not yet recognized or admitted to disobedience. But it may just be that there are other things that are so captivating our heart and our mind that we don't, we don't have much of our heart left for the things of God. I mean, that's easy to do in our day, especially in the fall especially when we're looking at calendars, trying to make everything fit, and, and it's so easy to get to the end of the day and just, man, I haven't acknowledged God's work in my life at all today because I've just needed to get through the day. And yet for those whose hearts are, are captivated by the Lord, there will, be a, there will be part of that in everything that we do. In fact, if you look at verse 9 again, you, you might have missed it, but there is, a, there is a spontaneous word of praise that comes from the psalmist just just writing down the redemption of God. Look back. It says, He sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The psalmist can't even write that sentence without praising God, without responding with joy for what God has done. That, that is a window into the heart of the person writing this. And the way that we, that we study God's work and praise his name, that, that's also a window into our faith because the two should be there. 
Those who delight in God will study his works and will praise his name. Now we're going to look at praising now just for, for the last bit of our time together. See, it's not enough that we simply believe in God or acknowledge the truthfulness of his works. We need to praise him. There should be some sort of emotional response, a willingness to, to come together and worship God and praise God. Matt, <clears throat> are you talking about singing on a Sunday morning? Matt, is that what you're talking about? Yes. Yes, in part, definitely. That's part of the praising of God, of God's people coming together. Okay, but Matt, I'm not really much of a singer. Believe me, we know. We, we've heard you. It's okay. <laughs> That's okay. <clears throat> That's not really the point. The, the point isn't exactly how we sound. The point is that the heart behind our gathering in the times of worship is, is heartfelt, is that we are delighted to praise God. And so, yes, Yes, we see in the Bible that God's people coming together and singing songs, it seems to be what we're going to do a lot in the future. In fact, if you look at a description of heaven, there's a lot of singing. That is a big part of what it means to praise God, but that's not everything. Praising God is an attitude of, of heart. It's something that sometimes we do publicly, and sometimes it's just in a prayer of thanksgiving. It's, it's thanking God that a meeting went well, or that a situation you were praying about came to a good end. It's, it's a disposition that says, Lord, I, I know you're, you're at work. I'm so thankful for it. It's one that is continually praising God with your lips and with your mind and with your heart. Okay, but, but Matt, isn't this all a bit contrived? I mean, if, if you're telling us that the Bible, like God is saying that we should praise him, you're telling us that we should praise him. In fact, we have a we have something on the calendar every Sunday where we come together and now's the time. We have, to, we have to praise him. Doesn't that feel a little hollow, like we sort of have to do it? It's a fair question, right? It, is there a lack of integrity in this, in this thing we call praising God? Are we orchestrating it so that we feel like we, we should do it and we have to do it? And It's something that a lot of people have wrestled with. You may know the name C.S. Lewis. He's a He's known as a Christian thinker and author, but there was a, a big part of his life where he was not a believer at all. And this is one of the things he really struggled with, that he looked at this call to, to praise God. He read through the Psalms, and he kind of, kind of felt like it lacked integrity, like God was doing amazing things and then telling everyone to clap for him, and it just felt wrong to him. Well, I want to read you a passage of, of Lewis as he looks back on that time and, and thinks about the nature of Christian praise. I think this is helpful for us. Here's what he says. But the most obvious fact about praise, whether of God or anything strangely escaped me, I thought of it in terms of compliment, approval, or the giving of honor. I never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. The world rings with praise. Readers, their favorite poets. Walkers praising the countryside. Players praising their favorite game. Praise of weather, wines, dishes. Actors, motors, horses, colleges. Countries, rare stamps, and children. Our list would probably be different this century, but the point is that, that he's right. <clears throat> that our lives are filled with praise. You can't go see a movie that you enjoy without telling someone the next day. It's natural. Did you see that, that movie? We just saw Mission Impossible. It's, re it's really great. I mean, unless you like violence. But honestly, it's, that naturally comes out of my lips. Why? Because I enjoyed it. The things that we enjoy will naturally spill over into praise. We will tell others about it. And the same should be true if we genuinely delight in God. If our faith is genuine and heartfelt, we will naturally be talking about the things that God has done because it's, it's the joy of our heart. Now, there's one other thing that, one other insight 
that he makes, I think this is also helpful. He says this, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it is expressed. And so what he's pointing out there is that when God, when God commands us to, to praise him, it's not only for his honor, it's also for our joy. It's because God wants for us to fully enjoy him. And to do that, we need to praise him. That's part of the way that we, we enjoy him. So his command to praise is an invitation to enter into our fullest joy. Because the praising of God, it, it, it's powerful, it's humbling, and it is enjoyable. It's a time when we do genuinely let our, let our guard down. When we do revel in all that God has done and recognize the humility that we need to have before such an awesome and powerful God. I mean, that's why we're having Thursday evening, a night of worship, a day of prayer where we spend our time reminding ourselves and asking God for help in all the ministry activities that we hope for, just that he would work throughout the Tri-Cities and all the churches that are preaching the gospel. We want for God to move, and so we're going to be fasting and praying. And we gather together at the end of that day to praise God for what he's done and to express the hope that we have in him. It, it's something that is right, but it's also something that's enjoyable. I mean, isn't that why Stevie Wonder wrote that song? He could have written a letter. Right? He could have, if he wanted to tell everyone how he felt about his daughter, he could have written a letter back in those days. He could have put an ad in the paper. But he wrote a song because it felt good. It felt joyful. He loved to do it and we love to hear it. It's the same when it comes to praising the Lord. That there's a rightness to it and also an enjoyment to it. God forbid that we become a people that focus on the theological truths of God but don't enjoy those truths. That don't, that don't find a smile on our face when we think about how God treats humanity and the grace of God. Now, we have one last verse, and it may seem a little out of place. You may have forgotten it. We're going to put it up on the screen. Here's verse 10. Here's what it says. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. Now, the last line seems to fit. We're talking about praising God, but those... Those other lines, you know, the fear of God, that, that doesn't sound exactly joyful. It, it feels a bit heavy. But this is where we see the difference between happiness and joy. See, happiness is a result of pleasant circumstances in our lives. Happiness is just when things go well. It's when at the end of the day you find there's ice cream left in the freezer. Oh, man, that's great. Well, I'm really happy about that. I was, I was hoping for, I didn't know. Man, that, that feels good. That's happy. Joy is, is something much deeper. And for the Christian, joy is rooted in the sovereign power and character of God. It's in his grace. It's in knowing a God who has every right to condemn us in our sin, and yet he shows us undeserved mercy and love. And more than that, he, he has done it to such an extent that he gave his only son to come and die and suffer on our behalf to be resurrected and point the way to life forever. See, fearing a God like that, there is a heaviness to it. There is an attitude of reverence and awe. But it also means to be touched deeply by his love. To have a sweetness each and every day in knowing that the God of the universe who made everything that we see also knows us personally 
and has done everything necessary so that we might be made new, be redeemed. See, that, that kind of joy, it, it will spill over into praise. It, it will help to counteract whatever the circumstances are in our life. And so I say again, those who delight in God will study his works and we will praise his name because we have every reason to in spite of whatever's going on in our daily life and because of the way in which he is working in those circumstances. So I'd ask you to join me in prayer and then we will have a time to praise God for who he is. Lord God, we are very, very thankful. I, I am thankful, God, for your word. Thankful, God, that in it you continually help us to, to know you more and to push us along the way of righteousness. Jesus, we thank you most of all for your sacrificial work on the cross that, that we did not have to try to find a way to make things right with, with God in spite of our sin. Jesus, you came and you did that for us. You did it even though we did not deserve it. And God, I, I pray that we would be a people for those here especially who know you, I pray that we would be a joyful people, a people that praises you naturally and continually. And God, I pray for those who, who are here who don't yet know you, I pray, God, that they would see the supreme value of, of worshiping you and finding their joy in you rather than just the things that you have made in this world, good as they are. And I pray, Lord, for our, for our city, Lord, that you would move, that you would open up people's eyes and hearts to see their need for a love that endures forever. And I pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.